Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So I'm going to argue today that in Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul lays out the premises of a false teaching that he is refuting. And he's refuting this then throughout the first three chapters. So he'll take these premises, he'll show that they're contradictory, but his conclusion is in 321 to 24. Let's read there. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul reaches this conclusion after these three chapters of discussing the possibility of righteousness through the law. And which law we're going to talk about, but law in general. Not just Jewish law, but the law written on the heart. And so the discussion in these first three chapters, it really only begins to broach Paul's main point. We're not really doing Paul's gospel as he is first dealing with a false teaching in regard to the law. And of course he concludes that yes, all are culpable, including this false teacher, by the way. All have sinned. There is no advantage to having the law. But by chapter 7, and we need to keep chapter 7, and his, these are really his final conclusions in regard to the law, we need to keep this in mind as we read chapters 1 to 3. Because by then, the law itself is implicated in the problem. And in chapter 7, Paul is referencing the commandment given to Adam. So that the law and its problems are universalized. It's not only Jews who have a law problem, but all people in Adam have the same problem. And so it doesn't matter if the reference is to Gentile law, the law of Moses, or the law theoretically written on the heart. It does not matter what the source of this law is, as sin creates a deception in regard to the law. That's what it says in Romans 7. It's implicating the law as giving rise to sin and needs to be kept in mind then in chapters 1 to 3. And the reason is because in many traditional readings, Paul will be attributed with teaching a contradictory understanding, I think. And we can sort this out if we keep the conclusion in chapter 7 in mind. 
He says in 7, 7 and 10 to 12, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so far from teaching that the law is foundational to the gospel, Paul teaches that the gospel delivers from the bondage to the law. And chapters 1 to 3 then is an illustration of how this bondage works. While Romans 4 to 8 pictures how rescue occurs. And so I think we need to read retrospectively. And in this way we can see that Paul is building a case in these first three chapters. Not just that the law is of no advantage, but something much stronger. The law is part of the problem. It's not just that the human problem is you know, not to be perceived in terms of law and transgression. That's true. But this wrong perception is the problem. The law, which gives rise to forbidden desire in chapter 7, in spite of the life that it seemed to offer and due to the deception of sin, produces death for the ego, the I. It's a life of death in which Paul describes an agonistic struggle in which he split within himself and sin is in control. And Paul calls this in 7.24, he sums it up, this is the body of death. Or in 8.2, he calls it the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the structuring principle of the subject in which life is controlled by an orientation to death due to the law. That is, there's a primordial deception and a destructive drive that is unleashed in regard to the law. And so in Paul's depiction of this human subject, participation in the Trinity is displaced. That is, our participation in who, who God is is displaced by the law. Specifically, the law displaces relationship with God as Abba. It displaces our relationship to be found in Christ as we're consumed in an, a struggle within ourselves. It displaces life in the spirit with a death-dealing deception. That's the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Romans 7, God is not present. It's all about the law. Romans 8, the problem with the law is taken care of, and now we participate in who God is. And so righteousness perceived on the basis of the law is the sin problem directly addressed by Christ. This is in 7.4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also were made dead to the law through the body of Christ, that ye should be joined to another, you're either joined to the law or you're joined to God. You're joined to God or you're joined to the law. Even to him who was raised from the dead. How are we joined to God? Through Christ. That we might bring forth fruit unto God. Being made dead to the law. Whether Jewish law or Gentile law. We're delivered from its strictures. And this is a key part then of salvation. 
Now, if we go back and just look, have your fingers on Romans 1, 18 to 32. Is this the last word or even the beginning word in regard to the human situation? Notice here the starting point, you know, and the conclusion is that the wrath of God is primary. The wrath of God revealed from heaven. And throughout this passage, there is no mention of the love of God. Which, of course, by chapter 8 of Romans, he's going to say this is the main thing. This is definitive of who God is. The compassion of God has no place in this understanding laid out in 118 to 32. God's mercy is absent, at least for these pagans. You know, that's what's being talked about in 118 to 32. God judges, he condemns, and the notion that he might forgive cannot even be contemplated. And this is part of the argument that will take place as God's righteousness demands judgment. Well, we know that Paul does not think wrath and retribution are the essential nature of God. Though in this presentation, all people, but especially, you know, this is really about non-Jewish people, are culpable and damned. They know what they should do, and yet they cannot help themselves. They have a law written on their heart. They have a natural revelation about God. You know, they have available light. But they have chosen to be idolaters and have become sexual predators and perverts. They could have enlightened minds, but instead they're totally depraved, with their hearts completely darkened. And in this system, it's not clear whether the culpability is assigned to individuals or to the group. Because when they begin, in the beginning, it says, well, all people understand God's omniscience, God's omnipotence. But then it seems some get sin rolling, and with these initial sins, this block of humanity is just completely darkened. So it speaks in strongly condemning tones about others. They have sinned, and sinned, and sinned. And it's almost like this person says, and I can assure you personally that God is angry with them. Since he and I are on such good terms, you know. That is, I don't think this is in the voice of Paul. The they here, as a result, is unclear. Who exactly has this philosophical opportunity to recognize the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the justice of God? It seems there was an original few, and then they ruined it for the rest. Because after they reject God, after this foolish rejection of God, the disobedient pagans in the passage, they're overwhelmed by lusts. They become so immersed in depraved behavior that they generate an entire culture of idolatry and sexual immorality. And these pagans then are collectively trapped. And by the end of this passage, the philosophical man, you know, the one who could understand God from nature, is gone. 
and subsequent generations are inundated with sinful passions and ultimately murder. And the question is, is it fair that they will be expected to know God and act accordingly by the end of this passage? Can they fairly be expected either to perceive a transcendent God or to act in accordance with God's wishes? That is, it seems there's a kind of fundamental inequity for those who suffer the consequences of the decisions of those who were given the original opportunity where an original few had the possibility to save themselves at the judgment through wisdom, those who come after a trip by wisdom. And remember, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about final judgment. How are you going to be saved in the final judgment? Well, by keeping the law, according to this teaching. And of course, in this passage, wisdom has become foolishness which shows itself in their worship of the creation. They are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. You know, he goes through this long list in 129 to 32. God is angry. God is retributive. God is punishing. Pagans are going to die in their sins and they deserve it. They are getting their just deserts. If this is simply Paul's opinion, we hear nothing of the self-indictment which will come later in this letter or in notions such as in 1 Timothy in which he says, I am the chief of sinners. Are pagan idolaters peculiarly sinful in Paul's theology? Or are pagan idolaters peculiarly sinful in the eyes of of a false teacher, a Judaizing false teacher. You know, how does this accord with Paul's notion in Galatians in which he says that actually Judaizing Christians are the worst sort of sinners. He says they're guilty of idolatry. So whoever Paul is giving voice to here, and I think he's giving voice to, he's describing a false teaching. It's in the third person. You know, he is not included, and as Douglas Campbell has described it, this person has taken the ethical and rhetorical high ground in relation to the pagans with a striking absence of self-knowledge. He speaks of God perhaps as something of a self-appointed representative. You know, we might think of the TV preachers who get up and preach on the wrath of God and then we find out, well, they themselves are doing the very things they're preaching against. And that's what Paul is going to say about this false teacher. This guy, he discloses, this person discloses the wrath of God now in his own preaching. Does that sound like Paul's preaching? And then in deploying it, he leaves out himself. This figure has not included himself within the orbit of fallibility. He stands outside it and above it. Hence, even, you know, there are, if there are elements of truth in this, in what he's saying, the tone of judgment is overriding. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, if Romans 1, 18 to 32, is this Paul's starting premise 
in regard to the human situation? Or is this, in fact, the understanding of a false teacher that Paul then, in chapter 2 and 3 and 4, is refuting? And what is at stake in our reading of this opening section of Romans, I think is nothing short of our understanding of reality. And so actually in Romans there are two anthropologies presented. There's this one in 118 to 32, in which people can have full knowledge of God, full knowledge of themselves, full knowledge of the world. And then there's Paul's anthropology, in which he describes that all people are in bondage. There are two cosmologies, one in which law and retributive justice reign, and one in which Christ reigns. And there are two theologies, or two views of God, one in which we understand who God is in and through Christ Jesus, the other in which we understand who God is in and through the law. If we do not clearly sort out the difference here in Romans 1 to 3, the danger is we will imagine the false anthropology, ontology, and theology of this false teacher are what is being taught by Paul. And in these verses, retributive justice is the only option. Judgment is on the basis of works. And all people have access to full knowledge of God through natural revelation or through the Old Testament. And they do not need Jesus Christ if only they had kept the law, if they'd done what is right. I can just imagine the teacher at the end of 118 to 32 saying, Amen, brother and then extending the argument, saying, these pagans do not have the benefits of the Mosaic law, by which means we Jews, you know, we are not guilty of idolatry. Idolatry is avoided. We have enlightened thinking, and we've capitalized upon that. We possessors of the law control our base desires. You will not find any sexual perverts or gossips among us. We circumcised ones by the very efficacy of the sign of circumcision. Circumcision is key here. We receive the benefits of having our desires curtailed. Now we know there are texts such as Maccabees and other Jewish literature that describe the virtues conveyed by the law. The goodness, or rightness, or wisdom, self-control, courage, to conquer, you know, bodily appetites and passions. And think of the Maccabees, you know, they, they are a persecuted people, and they're under torture, and yet they're virtuous. And so Paul may be arguing so extensively in regard to circumcision, as this is a key sign, certainly among Jews, but it's a key sign I think this false teacher is emphasizing. Philo, who is a Jewish teacher, nearly contemporary with Paul, he goes through the advantages of, you know, what does circumcision do for you? He says it prevents disease, it secures 
the cleanliness of the whole body. It makes the part that is circumcised resemble the heart. And both organs are all concerned with generation, the heart of thoughts and the generative organ of living beings. Circumcision is a symbol of the excision of all the pleasures which delude the mind. Circumcision is a symbol of discarding that terrible disease, the vain opinion of the soul. Circumcision is symbolic of the excision of vice, is the means to an achievement of superior ethical state. And then Philo goes on and he connects all this. You know, it's connected with sexual ethics, but interesting also with the absence of idolatry. Circumcised, no idolatry is what he's equating. Circumcised, virtuous. Circumcised, no problem with sexual immorality. He's saying it's a kind of automatic benefit of the law of circumcision. And so we could understand that this false teacher cannot imagine how is sin going to be curtailed among Christians? You know, how is ethics going to be instigated apart from circumcision? Because we know circumcision is the beginning of virtue. And circumcision is the entry into the Jewish law. And so these pagan Christians, he's arguing, I think, will need to be circumcised. Just as the uh, false teachers in Galatia were arguing for circumcision. They need to practice Jewish ethics even though they're Christians. And only in this way will they be declared righteous at the judgment. I think this false teacher is saying. Chapter 2 then. Paul begins to take this argument apart in universalizing the presumptions of 118 to 32. 118 to 32, it's about those pagans. But then Paul says, well, wait a minute. He begins to undermine this teacher's notion. He has passed judgment and has not included himself, but presumes to judge all of the pagan world, and he doesn't apply the same criteria to himself because he's a Jew. Now, don't get confused here. I'm not talking about Judaism in particular. In, you know, I think I'm talking about only this teaching of the false teacher. This teacher presumes that because he is a law-keeping Jewish Christian, he has meant the required standard. In his understanding, the law and circumcision are the means and measure of righteousness. Possessing the law including or especially, you know, marked by circumcision. This is the way to constrain the sinful passions. And this is evident. You know, those pagans, they're not circumcised. Look how degraded they are. The law saves as judgment will be according to the works of the law in this false teacher's understanding. And of course, if this were the case, then Jews and especially Jewish law-keeping Christians would be at a definite advantage. And this is the argument I think Paul is taking on. Paul argues that according to the criteria of the teacher, this is where he begins to take it apart, well, there would be potentially bad Jews and good pagans if it's just a matter of keeping the law. You know, it could be just the law in the heart. As he says in 2, 9 to 10, 
there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who, who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul may be ironically quoting the teacher in this construal of first and last. Because notice that it says, oh, they'll be damned first as well as saved first. It's not really a privilege to be damned first. And there's no real difference between Jews and Gentiles in this scheme to say nothing of Christian or non-Christian. So we're not doing the gospel yet. We're still dealing with this false teaching. This teacher we know from 2, 19 to 20, if you look there, he must be boasting about the efficacy of the law. You yourself are a guide to the blind, Paul says, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. We know Paul doesn't believe that, but he's saying, oh, you're teaching this. And in this teacher's view, the law automatically conveys an advantage such that those who possess it are to be the guides of humanity, to blind humanity. And this is where, you know, in 2.21 to 24, he talks about a specific historic example recorded by Josephus of some Jews who do not live up to the standard. You know, these apparently a group of Jews seduced a woman, got her to donate a lot of money to the temple, and then they run off with the money. In 2.21 to 24, Paul references that. He's not saying this is true of all Jews, that all Jews are charlatans and robbers of temples, but he's showing that the law and circumcision do not convey the automatic benefits the teacher imagines, nor automatically make the Jews the chosen race. And then having extracted this kind of firm commitment from the teacher to this, you know, what is the principle here? Well, in the judgment, you know, you're saved by works of the law. And he uses this principle to eliminate Jewish advantages. Well, if that's the case, there is no advantage in being a Jew. The teacher must submit to this, this argument to be exposed, you know, because what he's apparently talking about, you Christians are going to keep the law because this is the way to be ethical. And so Paul seems well aware of the principle of desert. It really didn't turn out that Jews are any more ethical, any less problematic than other people. And by 2.29, he has rebutted the teacher's argument using his own premises. Look at 2.28 to 9.29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. By the teacher's argument, it may be concluded against the teacher that it is righteous Gentiles who may judge unrighteous Jews. 
Remember back in 118 to 32, we just covered the whole human pagan world. But Paul says, wait a minute. By this argument, what if it's the case that some of these righteous pagans will actually end up judging unrighteous Jews? Jews, even, or, or maybe especially by this teacher's premises, they cannot be accorded any special privilege. Now we know, Paul is going to reject this entire scheme. That's the verse that we opened up with. He does not believe God is retributive. He does not believe that righteousness is determined by the law. And so, too, the traditional reading of 3, 1 to 9 is reversed. You know, if you look at these verses in 3, 2, 4, 6, under the traditional reading, we completely reverse this. 2, 4, and 6 are advocating justice and judgment by works, and we often imagine Paul is saying that. But actually, it's Paul in 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9 that's questioning the advantage of the Jew, 3.1, who argues that the law is nullified by a lack of faith, 3.5, who suggests a strict righteousness system is unfair, verse 7, who questions that the Jew has any advantage. If we miss Paul is refuting the arguments of the teacher, you know, in 1.18 to 32, not only are we going to end up with those premises, but we're actually going to end up with exactly the wrong understanding in 3, 1 to 9. Attributing to Paul the argument of the false teacher and attributing Paul, even in a traditional reading, to his interlocutor. And so the alternative, I think, this is the conclusion is to recognize that Paul is laying out in 1.18-32 the premises that are refuted. You know, he's refuting the premises of the false teacher. In 3.9-20, he brings all of this to a conclusion. He silenced this, the teacher by driving him into a corner through a series of scripture quotations. The very ones that this teacher relies upon. The teacher may imagine he's rescuing Christian converts by insisting they keep the law. And the only way of being saved in this scheme is by works. Paul, on the other hand, considers the teaching that the law is primary as falling short of the true gospel. That's why he wants to come to Rome to preach his gospel. Thus, let's go back to where we began. The end of chapter 3. There should be no question. He rejects law as the basis of righteousness. He rejects retributive justice. He rejects the scheme of the false teacher. And he clarifies this in the starting point, which I believe this is the starting point of his teaching his gospel at the conclusion of the chapter. 3, 21 to 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. We have a different definition of righteousness. Certainly, it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. They attest to something beyond themselves. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God revealed from heaven for all those who believe. It's a shared righteousness. All enter into this righteousness through Christ. There is no distinction. For all have sinned. Jews with the law who are you know, keeping the laws of circumcision, who are not idolatrous. They've also sinned. They've also fallen short of the glory of God. Gentiles who do not have the law, they also have fallen short of the glory of God. And everyone is justified in the same way, not through circumcision, not through the law, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This clenches the argument. And this then serves as the beginning of Paul's full explanation of the unconditional gospel, which he takes up in the rest of the book of Romans. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.